0: We are grateful for the time you take to join us for these conversations.
1: You're listening to the ERLC podcast. Har,
0: har, har. There you go. You know, that's probably making the intro. <laughs>
2: <laughs> Gary can always use a little pirate. Uh, I mean, you may have just busted his studio speakers, I don't know. I think oh, so. Oh, that's right. I forgot. Gary's ears are bleeding
1: now, and we all have to say mea culpa, mea culpa. Right. Hello, and welcome back to this week's episode of the ERLC Podcast, where every week we're talking about our work here at the ERLC and focusing on what Christians need to know about the things going on in the world. I'm Josh Wester, and with me on the podcast today, as always, are my co host Lindsay Nicolay.
0: Hello, everybody.
1: And Brent Leatherwood. Top of the morning to you, folks. Man, we're excited about another week of podcasting. It's going to be a good episode. And later in the show, we're excited to talk to a special guest, uh, Dana McCain. And so we can get into it. Lindsay, tell us what the ERLC has been talking about this week.
0: I just have to start off by saying, you know, Brent, this podcast doesn't drop at the top of the morning. Maybe it's somebody's top of the morning.
2: It's five o'clock in the morning somewhere.
0: <laughs> Crickets. <laughs> I don't know. Let's calculate that and see. Anyway, moving on to uh, what's happening at ERLC.com this week. So Hold on. Before we, we... get there,
1: Lindsay, I've just got to tell you, this reminds me of a West Wing episode, and I think you would want to know that because oh. there's this time where they're really frustrated because they're trying to figure out what time it is on Mars, and it's not lining up with the time <laughs> like the, that it is there. <laughs> Mars has its own time zone. Yes, Mar- Mars has its own time. So anyway, it's five o'clock, maybe on
0: Mars. It's 5 o'clock maybe on Mars, and I'll never know because I'm never going to try to go to Mars, especially after watching away. Uh, Okay, everybody, back to some substantive content here. We uh, have kicked off a primer series that we're really excited about at ERLC.com to help all of us uh, better grasp Christian ethics from a variety of different topics. But kicking us off is our very own Russell Moore, the president of the RLC with an article titled, What is the Basis for Christian Ethics? And after describing how Jesus calls himself the way, the truth, and the life, uh, Dr. Moore says this, Christian ethics are the overflow of a way connected to the way, of truths anchored in the truth of a life rooted in the life. Christian ethics can include complicated philosophical and existential reflections about the most complex of personal or social dilemmas, but at its heart, Christian ethics is about hearing the voice of Jesus, maybe around a campfire, like He did with the disciples, saying what He has said to us from the beginning, come, follow me. And I just love how He he simplifies that, that Christian ethics are not abstract, but they are found in a person.
1: Yeah, I can't think of a better way to kick off this Primer series. And for those of you who are, you know, you didn't out this article yet. I would just say uh, what we're trying to do here, this was the brainchild of Jason Thacker, and the goal is we're going to be releasing a series of articles related to Christian ethics, and each one is going to be based around a book uh, that you can read. It's kind of a primer to introduce yourself to whatever this discipline or field of ethics is. And so uh, there's going to be a number of articles coming out in the series, and I'm really excited about, but this this article from Dr. Moore, What is the Basis for Christian Ethics, is really just a framing article. So if you're totally unfamiliar with what Christian ethics even is, this is a place for you to go to get that kind of baseline,
0: yeah. And the books, the goal of the the books that are shared is that they are uh, smaller books. They're not big tomes, lengthy tomes. Uh, they're smaller. they're easily accessible. And then, of course, they provide and the authors provide an overview of these books to help you so that you can follow along. So next week, we'll also have another post by Dr. Moore talking about a little book that has really helped him and reshaped his view of ethics by an author that he loves. So stay tuned for that. Next up, because we skipped him last week, and it seems like we feature him every week, again, is our co-host, one-third of the hosts of the ERLC podcast, Josh Wester, with an important article because next week start the Supreme Court confirmation hearings with Amy Coney Barrett. And so he's written an article that takes a closer look at the judicial philosophy of Amy Coney coney barrett and this is what uh josh says just in case you forgot josh what you wrote in your article regardless of whether or not one agrees with barrett's beliefs the most important thing about a judicial nominee is not his or her faith or religious background but the nominee's judicial philosophy a jurist's understanding of and approach to the law why don't you tell us more about it josh
2: Wait, wait 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 before we we get into this uh Really good article. Let's be honest, Lindsay. This is really kind of like the Josh Wester show, and mm-hmm. you and I are are invited to participate. That's right, uh, each week, and so of course we would uh, try and feature an item from from Josh each week because really this is this is a front uh, for getting the uh, the Josh Wester profile
0: hot raised higher. I'm just glad to be welcomed along to the show here.
2: It's actually just a privilege to share a microphone, uh, at least virtually, uh, with Josh Wester.
1: Man,
0: hi, hi praise. Josh! I feel all the, very, all the feel feels, very loved.
1: Yeah, all the feels. Um, yeah, so looking at this article. We talked about ACB, as she sometimes referred to last week, Amy Coney Barrett, and she's somebody that uh, for a lot of religious conservatives that we're really excited about as a uh, Supreme Court nominee and the potential of her as a Supreme Court justice. But in this article, I just took a look at uh, her judicial philosophy, like looking at what what is what is it that frames or or focuses her approach to the law. And so uh, I walked through several things that you're probably, you've are probably you probably heard some of these words before, but you may not uh, know what they even mean. I looked at uh, what she calls herself a textualist and, a, and an originalist. She clerked for the late Justice Antonin Scalia, and she considers herself to be a judge in the mold of Scalia. And he was both an original and a textualist. In fact, one of his best quotes, which I did not put in this piece, he said, I'm a textualist, I am an originalist, and I am not a nut. I thought that was a pretty great scalia So anyway, in this article, I took, took a look at those things. I also looked at something important called stare decisis, which is probably not a thing unless you're a, a real legal nerd or you pay a lot of attention to things like Supreme Court um, confirmation hearings. It's probably not something that you're that familiar with, but it's an important topic, especially as we're looking at what what does she think about precedent? What does she think about uh, established rulings from the Supreme Court? And and especially for us, you know, one of the things we're paying a lot of attention to is the future of abortion in the United States. And two of the most important Supreme Court precedents are Roe versus Wade and Planned Parenthood versus Casey. And so we are eagerly watching the future of those cases. And we're really interested in Judge Barrett's judicial philosophy because we, we want to know not just what she thinks so much about that, but about the, the role of precedent and whether or not uh, these kind of cases that have been referred to over and over again, whether they can be overturned. I'm,
2: I'm thankful that you uh, did this review of her philosophy and her record, Josh, because, I mean, obviously, the the hearings will uh, start next week. And uh, the fact is, is that Amy Coney Barrett is eminently qualified to be a justice on the United States Supreme Court. And uh, actually, one of the things in in doing just my own reading about her that I have really appreciated is that... She has a number of people who disagree with her legal philosophy, who are still saying she absolutely uh, should be a justice on the Supreme Court now that she's been nominated, and that to me tells me she she thoroughly researches uh, these cases that are brought before her, and and she gives a fair hearing to uh, the individuals that that are are bringing the case and defending the case, and I, I just think that is. Uh, that speaks very highly of her, and that's the type of folks uh, that 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 we need on the bench.
0: We have a, a pop culture article, per se, by our uh, very own Amanda Hayes. She does a lot of the work behind the scenes with our data, and she is a data genius. It's pretty amazing what she can extrapolate and figure out and educate us about. And I'm very thankful she likes to work with spreadsheets. But she has written an article titled, Four Conversations I'm Having with My Child About Mulan. So you may remember the controversy about the filming of Mulan, and it was released on Disney Plus Premium. I guess you have to pay a premium price for it uh, since it wasn't able to come out in theaters during the pandemic. But it was uh, a lot of it was filmed in the region where the Uyghur Muslims are being persecuted. And at the end of Uh, The film, when the credits were rolling, uh, the filmmakers thanked the Chinese Communist Party and a lot of people that are complicit in uh, the Uyghurs' plight. And also the lead actress has spoken up for the Chinese Communist Party. And so there are some really big uh, ethical and human dignity issues going on here. So a lot of parents may be wrestling with whether or not to even watch Mulan or whether to boycott it, uh, how to talk to their kids about it. So Amanda has done some of this wrestling in this article for us. She's provided some of the news links to to catch up on the latest news, but I thought she broke it down beautifully. I thought that she provided a great rundown and also does it in a way that says, you know, your family may choose one thing, another family may choose another thing, but here are some bottom line points to begin having a conversation with your kids about human dignity. Josh and Brent, with your kiddos in the house, have y'all had any thoughts about watching this when it's available on Disney Plus?
1: So we just celebrated a birthday in our house this week. Our son turned seven years old, which is really awesome. I don't think he's quite old enough for me to be able to walk him through and explain the nuances of what's going on here. But my my children really do love these Disney live action movies. And so I do think that this is going to be one that I'm saving for a a future time to watch with him and hopefully to be able to have some important conversations about what is taking place in terms of human rights violations in China. We're just not going to
0: watch it. Well, good. We have representations from both sides. (laughs) So good for you, Josh and Brent. And regardless, it's just a good reminder that you as parents have the power to control... The narrative of these things, what's happening in culture, and helping helping your kids understand the things that are happening. They don't have to be discipled by social media or by Disney.
2: Yeah, and look, I don't I don't say uh, that in like some sort of of pious way. We 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 consume a lot of uh, media, particularly through through Disney Plus at our home with with our three little ones. But uh, honestly, uh, uh, for the original animated version of Mulan my kids just didn't like they just didn't find it all that interesting and so just because of that I I just haven't even really thought about watching the live action one they're they're much more into you know kind of the talking animals phase like Lion King I'm here for some Lion King uh (laughs) I get that yeah but Mulan (laughs) they just haven't uh they haven't quite gotten taken to yet yet. yeah well
0: even if it was for pious reasons And,
2: and 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 if uh, if that day comes, we will definitely fall in the Western mold of explaining the context
1: of the movie to our kids and using it as a teaching opportunity. Fun fact, the one that is the most uh, watched in our house is actually the live-action Aladdin. My kids are nuts
0: about live-action Aladdin. And Will Smith as the genie is not bad. I'll have to check that one out. But let's move on to our final piece of content. Usually we only highlight three, but this week... We're going to highlight a fourth one because it's really important. So our colleagues in D.C. have a podcast titled Capital Conversations. And so Jeff Pickering and Travis Wuso sat down recently and had a conversation with Roland Slade. He's a pastor in California. He's also the first African-American elected to chair the Board of Trustees for the Southern Baptist Convention Executive Committee. Um, so that is a big deal, and we're thrilled for him. And so they talked to him about how pastors can build partnerships with public officials. And actually, we're going to have a, an article conversation with him uh, next week on our website. So Keep an eye out for that. But this is important because Roland and his church had an idea about how to how to care for their community. But this was happening in the midst of a pandemic in California, which was a hot spot. Through their example, they really showed us how you can work with civic leaders well. Roland is a friend of many of his local civic leaders, uh, and he made sure to abide by guidelines, to talk to them about different ways that they could pull this off and provide for their community. And so his story is a really encouraging one of how church and local government leaders can work together for the good of the community.
2: Right. Well, you know, throughout this pandemic, uh, the ERLC we we have counseled uh, pastors uh, to view themselves as as partners uh, with civic leaders, and we have urged local officials, state officials, federal officials to view churches as partners in trying to stop the spread of the virus, keep uh, communities safe, keep communities informed. And what I love about this with what Pastor Slade has done uh, in in his uh, community in California is he saw an opportunity to help the vulnerable and the marginalized, and in particular folks who are without shelter in his community, and said, hey, I've got I've got some extra space here on our church property. Let's see if our congregation has an appetite to serve in this direction, and they did, and they started thinking through, you know, how can we work with local officials? and And what I love about it is this: he was told initially, right at the outset, by a lot of local kind of political activist types, uh, folks who who know, I guess, the the city council. Oh, you'll you'll never get this done. Uh, they they will never go for this in their their planning um, documents and in their their budget. And so, what does Pastor Slade do? He's like, well, let, let me just call the mayor and uh, the folks on the city council individually and and just tell them my vision and and see if it makes sense. And lo and behold, it passed unanimously. All because he was willing to pick up the phone and talk with local officials. And like, it's just like that is the perfect embodiment. Of of what we're saying, and, and we've always said, hey, this this counsel uh, for this this time of a pandemic, it's good counsel whether we're in a, a global health crisis or we're out of it. Uh, pastors should constantly be seeing themselves as co leaders with elected officials uh, to to help their communities. And I am just so thankful uh, that Roland Slade uh, led this effort in his community. What a what a great feather in his cap in terms of his
1: witness to the watching world. It occurs to me though, as Brent's talking about this he is right. You know, He's will exactly, but he is right that we have counseled so many churches and pastors to try to view themselves as partners during this time. But one of the things I was talking to a pastor yesterday who said, we never even considered the fact that as we were reaching out to local government officials during this time, we're building relationships that are going to last far into the future. And so as our church is thinking about how we can continue to serve in our community, now we have relationships with people who have a, a kind of awareness of some of the critical needs in our city and in our community that we would have never known about, or we would have had a much diffi- more difficult time addressing. And so now we have a partnership that, because of this pandemic, was established. And so it is kind of a silver lining, and Pastor Pastor Roland here is, is modeling that kind of mentality. And and yeah, it's exactly right, because just think, uh, in, in your local community, uh, maybe there will be some
2: sort of, you know, fractious uh, cultural moment uh, that descends on your community, some sort of unrest or, or maybe a natural disaster, these sorts of lines of dialogue will be critical for serving your community as a pastor or as a church leader in that moment. And so use this opportunity, y'all, and and follow the lead of, of great Southern Baptist leaders like Roland Slade.
0: And again, be sure to listen to that Capital Conversations podcast episode and then check back next week because we will have an interview with him where you can hear more of uh, more of what was going on in his mind and heart more of the background story which actually Brent shared very well so we are so thankful for him and for his example and guys Josh and Brent that was a really long look at what's happening at erlc.com this week
1: so that was really great Brent, tell us what's going on in the world of culture. All right. So we begin
2: our look at the last seven days that have taken place since we all came together in our nation's capital. So after we recorded our podcast last week, it was revealed early Friday morning that President Donald Trump and First Lady Melania Trump tested positive for coronavirus. The tweet from the president announcing the news became his most retweeted message ever, which, I mean, that's saying something. Uh, and it set off a storm of activity uh, within the administration, in the political world, and in the media. As everyone now knows, the, the president developed symptoms, including shortness of breath and a fever, and was later taken by helicopter to receive medical care at Walter Reed Medical Center. President Trump spent three days there, where he received experimental treatments for COVID, a steroid shot for his lungs, and other medicine, to ensure that he could be put on a path to recovery. The president returned to the White House in dramatic fashion early this week, where Americans saw him exit Marine One and climb a flight of stairs to the Truman Balcony at the White House. And once there, President Trump quickly removed his mask, saluted the departing helicopter for 23 seconds, and then filmed a video update about his return to 1600 Pennsylvania Avenue. For the next couple days, the president remained isolated in the residence portion of the White House before he returned to work in the Oval Office. It was uh, unclear exactly how staff were able to interact with the president, given no one is is really sure about the, the status of, of the virus itself. But we were told that uh, multiple folks uh, were wearing uh, personal protective equipment, uh, so sure that's being followed. So that said, as of this recording, it does appear that the president is, is through the most critical phase of this virus and that he is not uh, suffering the worst effects of COVID-19 as, as so many other Americans uh, have dealt with. And that in and of itself uh, is, a, is a real blessing uh,
1: that we can all be thankful for. I'm glad you started uh, here with this story, obviously because of its significance, also because it kind of marks the fact that the last week, and this is a very 2020 thing, the last week felt like a month. When you said, oh, since the last time we did the podcast, the president got COVID. Like, that's the only thing that I've thought about since that happened. And it's dominated the news, it's dominated all the headlines. And so, man, what a year this week has been. That's my first thought. The second one is he announced this by tweet that he – had contracted COVID and I was awake when he did it. It was like just before midnight Thursday, or maybe it was right after midnight, or just before midnight on Thursday night. And I got this news that normally I would, you know, share with all the people I talked to about politics and no one was awake. And so I just kind of had to deal with it, you know, just, just hold it. And so we've been watching this, obviously prayed for the president. It's a scary thing to see uh, the commander in chief be taken down by an illness and not sure which, which way, you know, things might turn out. It, it reminds me of there were soldiers fighting in World War II when they found out that the president had died. It's not, you know, it, it's not unprecedented for presidents to die in office, but it is a, you know, the president's health matters to the state and security of the nation. And so this was something that we were watching very closely. Yeah, for this disease in particular, the, the president is in a high-risk
2: category due to his his age. And so I think everybody was was rightfully on edge when we learned the news about this.
0: Well, it certainly remained to be seen, and I guess still does, how he responded to the virus. And I'm very thankful that he and Melania have responded well. They seem to be recovering. But it was a reminder that this pandemic is not over. (laughs) and that uh, the coronavirus is real, that it's mysterious in the way that it travels a lot of times in the sense that you're not sure who's carrying it or when it's going to strike. So I know people are, again, we've talked about this so often. I know, I know people are really weary of it. I'm weary of it. Um, I'm willing to let down my guard in some respects. But it it actually still is a real thing that's affecting real people. And that's what it was a reminder of for me. I think one other
1: thing to point out before we move on is just the fact that with the death of Justice Ginsburg several weeks ago and then with the announcement that President Trump had contracted COVID, I think that uh, one of my observations was just that a lot of people I saw posting things in their initial reactions that later went on to either delete those things or retract those statements uh, because it kind of showed that sometimes politics can override people's humanity and you forget that we're supposed to. we're we're supposed to care and value other people as human beings before we see them as some kind of political champion or opposition. And so this is, you know, it it was a reminder for a lot of us to not lose sight of the fact that each one of us are human beings. And as Christians, we believe that every person is made in the image of God. And so even for those people that we have, you know, the strongest of disagreements with, we always want to see them, uh, see their humanity and value them as people before we get into any kind of, you know, political judgments or pontifications. Well, and one of the things that I was heartened by
2: is it really seemed like across the the Christian world, the initial reaction was one of a posture of prayer uh, for our, our president uh, and the first lady, the first family. And that was just really encouraging to see. Uh, I mean, because we, we shouldn't rush <laughs> to any sort of just as you were saying Josh like we, we shouldn't rush to be political partisans in this moment uh and the implications uh, political consequences whatever all that like save that man right, we just need to come together and make sure that this country that has endured a lot uh in in this this uh this crazy year we don't need anything uh like remotely could could have potentially happened and so uh i would say that was heartening to see and uh we should we should maintain that uh both for the the president first lady uh and also for for those who are in the president's uh, immediate orbit so that gets us to the 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 next uh news item we learned that the spread of the virus this week in the white house Uh, is extending beyond the first family. ABC News is reporting that the coronavirus has infected, quote, 34 White House staffers and other contacts in recent days, according to an internal government memo, an indication that the disease has spread among more people than previously known in the seat of American government. The memo was dated Wednesday and obtained by ABC News. The memo was distributed among senior leadership at FEMA, a branch of the Department of Homeland Security and the agency responsible for managing and continuing the national response to the public health crisis. Among those who are sick, White House Press Secretary uh, Kaylee McEnany, uh, Stephen Miller, White House advisor, and even one of the military aides who is responsible for for carrying the the nuclear football. And speaking of the military, the entire joint chiefs of staff who represent the heads of the military branches uh, were forced to go into quarantine this week because of their exposure at the White House. Uh, thankfully, none of them have, have tested positive uh, at this time. But you know, it goes back to what you were saying, Lindsay, this virus, it, it spreads and it affects people in such unique individual ways. I mean, I, I know we know in the macro level, uh, you know, flu-like symptoms, et cetera, but it does seem to just affect people very differently in a case-by-case basis.
0: It truly is wild in the news, and it makes me think of Josh. You said it earlier, but you know, a thousand years is as a day to the Lord, and one day feels like a thousand years right now <laughs> during our our uh, time here in space and history.
1: Right, Lindsay. I mean, we're in this we're in this time where uh, you know. Paul uses the language elsewhere. He talks about uh, this light and momentary affliction. This doesn't feel momentary right now. It feels ever present. And I think the you know the White House coronavirus outbreak is probably one of those things that for a lot of us who were tempted to move on uh, or to forget that this was a thing that we have to contend with, it, it brought that right back into the front of our consciousness. I mean, the thing that was uh, the most nightmarish to me thinking about the entire joint chiefs of staff being in quarantine. Like that is, it's more than surreal. It's, it's just kind of frightening. I mean, who could have imagined a scenario where we would have told, you know, where we would have said that all of the heads uh, of these military branches would be isolating and in quarantine because of an exposure to a virus. I mean, that is, you know, that, that is a narrative or a plot line. That is really scary. It feels less like the West wing to me and maybe something out of house of cards or something like that, but it is, it's where we are right now, and God willing, there is light at the end of the tunnel. I would say if somebody had put together
2: a movie script uh, about this year, I think it would have been rejected as being just too crazy. <laughs> Honestly,
0: absolutely too ludicrous. And it's as like a th-
1: horror movie that turns funny because it's not scary; it's it's just awful. Right.
2: One of the things that I've appreciated on on social media is is some of these kind of memes going around about like you know history majors in the future. There was like a conversation with, you know, their, uh, you know, doctoral advisor. Well, you know, I'm I'm really planning to focus on uh, the time period of uh, October uh, 1st to October 8th, uh, 2020. And the doctoral advisor said, yeah, that, that really feels pretty broad. Um, you know, I'm going to you, need you need to, to narrow know. that down. Yeah. And he's like, well, okay, my emphasis is really on the, the two hours around the president's tweet. I, I mean, <laughs> because it just seems like... It seems like so much news is happening on a sometimes hour by hour basis. I'm not even sure that we as news consumers are really able to absorb the, the gravity of all these major earth moving events.
0: No, and we won't be until years in the future when we see the, <laughs> the true effect that they've had on our society.
2: That's right. We're just well, along so we for ta- the ride right now we are we are just along for the ride that's exactly right uh, scream inside your heart um so we talked a little bit about transmission this was noteworthy this week the cdc acknowledges that coronavirus can spread via airborne transmission that that was the actual headline this week from npr why is that noteworthy well because as they report for months many experts who study the air airborne transmission of viruses have been warning that the coronavirus can spread through the air. Last month, many experts cheered when the Center for Disease Control seemed to address the issue, posting an update that suggested that aerosols, or tiny airborne particles expelled from a person's mouth when they speak, sing, sneeze, or breathe, might be among the most common ways that the coronavirus is spreading. But the agency took down that guidance a few days later, saying it was a draft proposal. Uh, that was posted to its website in error. But now the guidance is back. And honestly, I, I'm thankful for that because it's seemingly reflective uh, of what most people suspect about how the virus is, is transmitted, which is uh, why, Q Lindsay here, wear a mask and wash your hands and uh, and and stay at a safe distance from others. So needless to say, this has been an eventful. Uh, last seven days in Washington D.C.
0: Very good, my little Padawan. <laughs>
2: <laughs> that's a that's a Star Wars reference.
1: I, I'm sure that
2: members of our audience really appreciate you throwing that
1: in there.
0: I'm sure they would have picked up on that.
1: Hey, that was my that was my lunchroom last week. I was talking about Star Wars, so I'm I'm really there for that. So she doesn't do the the lunchroom about you know Supreme
2: Court history, but she'll do the one about Star Wars. I see what you're up to, Mm Lindsay. All right, this week also, we saw a debate between the candidates for vice president. That's right, current vice president Mike Pence squared off against U.S. Senator Kamala Harris, the Democratic nominee for VP. Over the course of 90 minutes, the two candidates went back and forth about topics ranging from the U.S. response to coronavirus, the economy, taxes, and even the peaceful transition of power. Honestly, I thought the highlight was the final question, which came from a young student in Utah. Uh, she asked, essentially, if y'all can't get along as leaders, how are we supposed to? But I was encouraged uh, that both candidates, uh, I think, did a good job of ending uh, the event on a high note by answering that question and uh, reaffirming that uh, America, uh, we can we can get back to, to better days, which is exactly what this country needs right now.
1: It was an incredibly civil debate. And honestly, it was a welcome relief from the debacle we saw uh, the week before. And honestly, you know, I, I saw some people saying, yeah, it's civil. But look, they they seem to have contempt for each other. There seems to be like subtext, to everything they're saying. You know, you can tell that there's this kind of d- just deep seated uh, disagreement between the two candidates. And what I what I wanted to say in response is. Of course there is. Like, they have deep disagreements about important and fundamental issues that shape not only the trajectory of our country, but but affect the way that real people live their lives. When we talk about civility, we're not at all advocating that people don't have strong opinions or not to care deeply about things. What we're talking about is the fact that we need to be able to disagree in an agreeable way. We need to be able to, again, recognize people's humanity even as we carry out conversations and dialogue and, and the political process in the midst of deep disagreement. And so I actually thought they modeled that really well. Yeah, it was
2: it was definitely something that was reassuring to me as a as a voter to see. Yes, Lindsay.
0: This is a more lighthearted take. I have to admit again, I did not watch uh the vice presidential debate. I did see my colleagues commenting about it on Slack. But the best part about it for me was when one of our colleagues who shall remain nameless said that Mike Pence reminded him of Brent when he gets older. (laughs) And Brent was like, dot, 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 thanks, question mark, dot, dot, dot. (laughs) So I don't know if he took that as a compliment or not. What say you, Brent? Yeah.
2: I mean, as I told this colleague earlier, I need to accept that as a compliment because the vice president is likely in better shape than I am uh, as as somebody who's 20, 25 years, I'm assuming, uh, younger than him. And so he's got a full head of hair. He's the second most powerful man in the world. Yeah, I'll, I'll take that as a compliment. So thank you, unnamed fellow colleague. So I'm really thankful for the interaction that we saw between uh, the two vice presidential candidates. Uh, Next week, October 15th, is scheduled to be the next debate, the next presidential debate. Unfortunately, it appears to be off. So the Commission on Presidential Debates, uh, first thing Thursday morning, announced that they were unilaterally moving the debate to a virtual format. So, hey, the rest of us are living our lives on Zoom. Seems like maybe the presidential candidates could as well, but uh, that was not greeted with much enthusiasm. President Trump immediately announced in a interview that he was doing on Fox Business that he would not be participating in this uh, virtual debate. And then a little later in the afternoon, Vice President Biden announced that he uh, would not be participating, which I guess if, if you don't actually have Someone to debate. It's not really a debate, anyways. Uh, all I know is that we have three weeks to go in this uh, crazy ride we call the 2020 election.
0: Well, and you opened up that little piece of news with an unfortunately, but I think we can maybe say fortunately, the next debate is canceled, so that we don't experience the the uh, dumpster fire that that was, was the first one, the first debate that left many people in our republic very discouraged
2: yeah that's true i mean look i'm a i'm a political nerd no doubt uh i my expectations were probably a little bit higher because it was going to be in a town hall format in front of you know living individuals where they they actually got to ask uh questions uh to the the candidates and and so i just man i i hate that we're missing that but yes if it was going to descend into the madness that was the the first debate, then that really doesn't benefit much of anyone. Okay, moving right along. On the weather front, all eyes are once again focused on the Gulf Coast. That's right, yet another hurricane is bearing down on Louisiana. Hurricane Delta is predicted to make landfall sometime on Friday this week, which will make it, gosh, I can't believe this, it will make it the sixth hurricane uh, to hit the Pelican State in 2020. The Weather Channel is reporting that Hurricane Delta is strengthening in the Gulf of Mexico as it heads for a Friday landfall, with life-threatening storm surge, damaging winds, and rainfall flooding from Louisiana and East Texas to Mississippi. USA Today noted that the storm first landed earlier this week in the Yucatan Peninsula, bringing strong winds, storm surge, and coastal flooding to Cancun. It's not good. So speaking of our friends down there, so uh, Southern Baptists from SBC Life. Baptist Press this week reported the International Mission Board is saying that the 2019-2020 Lottie Moon Christmas offering total of $159.5 million is the second highest offering in history. And the total exceeds by $4.5 million, their budgeted goal. IMB also received $97.2 million from the SBC's cooperative program. IMB President Paul Chitwood said, "Quote: I'm thrilled to report that the Lottie offering is growing again. And a growing Lottie offering means that more lost people, not fewer, will hear the gospel and be saved. And that is something uh, to really champion. I am I'm so grateful for the work that our friends uh, at the IMB do. And uh, I'm so grateful for Southern Baptists, whose faithful giving propelled the Lottie Moon Christmas
1: offering to to this total—that's a real uh, thing to celebrate. It is a thing to celebrate, and it is as Southern Baptists, the thing that brings us all together is international missions. Like that is the heartbeat of the Southern Baptist Convention. It is why uh, Baptist churches that are all autonomous come together to partner. That's the primary emphasis: is to take the gospel to the nations into all the world. And so when we think about the Lottie Moon Christmas offering, like I always think back to being a kid and bringing just the smallest amount of money, whether it's change uh, or, you know, a dollar bill or a $5 bill or something and contributing that. But but a huge part of this number is those children who – who give those small offerings and those faithful people in their churches who every year save money, put put aside, uh, you know, small amounts, whatever they might be so that they can give to the Lottie moon Christmas offering so that they can see missionaries put on the field so that they can see uh, the gospel go into all the nations in, in pursuit of the fulfillment of the great commission. It it really is a beautiful thing. It's something that uh, we should absolutely highlight. And finally this
2: week, We look at a new development from the Outback. Not the the steakhouse, the the Blooming Onion is is still on the menu, don't worry. But the actual Australian Outback. CNN reports that 11 Tasmanian devils have been reintroduced to mainland Australia more than 3,000 years after they died out there. 3,000 years. That's amazing to me. The carnivorous marsupials have been released into a 400-hectare, 988-acre wildlife sanctuary north of Sydney. I got to tell you, if this just means more Looney Tune uh, cartoon episodes, I'm I'm excited.
0: Yeah, I took a look at this article because our colleague Alex, actually, Ward, he likes these weird animal articles. And so (laughs) I thought he would be happy to know that (laughs) Tasmanian devils uh, are being reintroduced to Australia. And of course, true to form, Alex, who is so smart, had them confused with Tasmanian tiger devils or something like that, because who's heard of those? Alex has. But Brent, the most important thing in this segment for me about you is, do you write your own dad jokes? Cause that was a dad joke if I ever heard one at the beginning of yeah, this. Yeah, I mean, segment.
2: I was I was doing my my best uh, Dan Darling impersonation. Nice. <laughs> I just do it without the sweater vest.
0: That's right. I
1: just wonder how many people are going to be surprised to know that Tasmanian devils are real. Because you know, it was only a couple of years ago when I realized that it actually is a real thing. Not to mention carnivorous marsupials is well, that's a phrase and a mouthful that I plan to try to you know work into my vocabulary.
2: It'd be a great band name. That's right. <laughs> of, All right. Universe, Marshall,
1: Deal. <laughs> <laughs> Lindsay, Josh,
2: that's your look at this week of culture.
1: So now we're about to talk to a special guest that we're really excited about, Dana McCain. Dana is a member of the ERLC's Leadership Council, and she's also a writer who writes on faith and politics and culture at AL.com, which is a large newspaper in the state of Alabama, and we are really excited to talk to Dana today. Dana, thanks so much for joining us today, and as we're getting started with the podcast, would you tell us a little bit about yourself and what you do, and while you're at it, could you tell us one thing that God is teaching you in this season of life?
3: Yeah. So thanks for having me on. I am a columnist and I write in the areas of faith, culture, and politics in no particular order. I have a column that runs weekly in Alabama, primarily on AL.com and then in three of the flagship newspapers in the state, the Huntsville Times, the Birmingham News, and the Mobile Press Register. So um, that's been a joy and a challenge over the last few years. That's been relatively new contract for me um, but I've enjoyed it it's really given me a chance to talk about some important issues that are affecting all of our lives right now and um, it's been a lot of fun too um, in terms of what God is teaching me in this season of life I can say without reservation is that uh, he's teaching me my total dependence on him and it goes in several different directions you know as a parent, you know, I have young adult children now, one in college and one graduating from high school um, this year. And so you just realize that even all those things that you thought you could micromanage and control as a parent now are really in God's hands and in their hands. And so I've had to learn to grow in my faith and trust Him. And um, that's always um, an adventure, but I'm, I'm trying to learn.
0: Dana, that last question is always one of my favorites to ask guests to hear the answers um, telling us about what the Lord is teaching you. I feel like there's so much to mine there. So thank you so much for sharing that. So given given your profession, this next question might be easy for you. So this podcast focuses on Christians and culture. So can you tell us what things in culture that you're paying attention to right now?
3: I see a lot of discussion, um, particularly in the evangelical Christian world, and, and really in in Protestantism in the U.S. overall, this discussion about how to apply our faith in the public square. And um, the answers are kind of all over the board. There's so much that is changing about the political establishment in this season, and it's forcing, I think, a lot of people to step back and re-examine some of the associations that they've always you know, sort of taken for granted and been sort of automatically comfortable with, and to say to themselves, you know, is this really the best representation of what I know that God um, tells us in His Word and, and how best to apply that in my community and, and in my country? Um, so it, and I regrettably, I see us sometimes getting really impatient with one another as we all wrestle those questions, and they are big questions. and. Um, so I hope that we can all find the grace to help one another wrestle them well, um, and, and really lean into God's word and see what it is that He's trying to show us as a church and as a country right now.
2: Th- that is spot on, Dana. Lack of patience, lack of charity, lack of grace, and uh, it it, uh, it can be so discouraging at times because you 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 see that. From Christians, and and that that should be what we're known for. So I, I I I appreciate your answer there. And let me say, whenever there's a Dana McCain column that comes out, I'm reading it uh, because I am <laughs> I, I am you. so I am so thankful for your voice. And uh, you are often talking about uh, issues, and 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 you are doing so in in such a wise way. So I'm just very appreciative of you and the the platform that you have, uh, Dana. So uh, a while back, speaking of your writing, a while back you wrote an article on on whether or not you still consider yourself an evangelical, uh, and that caught a lot of folks' attention. Um, So based on uh, where things stand today, how do you feel about the label evangelical?
3: Yeah, it's a great question. And um, I think All of our lives, we're all probably around the same age, and all all of our lives, the the term evangelical was more of a theological or a doctrinal identifier. And I would say that in 2020, in the American lexicon, it is almost purely a political identifier, and that is where I get really uncomfortable with it. In terms of how we define evangelical, you know, theologically, I'm completely comfortable with it because my conservative theology has not changed at all over the course of my adult life. Um, I still believe fully that our highest calling is to love the Lord and to live out the Great Commission. And I think that is the essence of what it has always meant to be an evangelical. Um, But somewhere along the way, our association with certain political causes has has muddied up the distinction between um, what are the spiritual pillars of that label and what are the political or worldly pillars of that label. And so I have a love hate relationship with it, quite honestly, you know, in terms of the purely spiritual and biblical, I I would Proudly tell anyone I'm an evangelical. When it's used in the political context, I pump the brakes a little bit because um, I'm uncomfortable with the co mingling of those two things to the extent that it goes on today.
0: You already mentioned this, but you write about faith, culture, and politics for AL.com. And you've also covered um, some of this in your answers. But if you could just go a little bit more in depth, how do you balance your faith with your writing when you know you're speaking to such a broad audience?
3: You know, that is one of the hardest aspects of every column I sit down to write because for much of my adult life, I have, you know, taught Bible classes and both in parachurch settings and in my church. And so I'm used to speaking the language of scripture by way of, you know, explaining anything, you know, I, I constantly will point people back to scripture uh, but when you're talking to an audience that is not necessarily all Christian, let alone, you know, Protestant and evangelical, I have to sort of gauge how how quickly I can bring them along with me and what I want them to see about, you know, the ultimate truths that I think I would like for my readers to be aware of, um, about who God is and, and what He calls us to in this life and how we can best respond to that. So. Um, I do. I, I have, I sometimes will send a column to a friend who is at least even of a different denomination than I am and say, do you think people will track with this? Or or is this way too Sunday school for the Sunday paper? (laughs) And um, sometimes they'll say, no, that's, that's fine. And sometimes they'll say like, yeah, if you didn't grow up in church world, this is, this is a lot to chew and swallow. And so I I do try to be mindful of that because I don't want to you know, swing for the f- fences and, and miss people. I want to, um, put the hay down where the goats can get it as my daddy would say. <laughs> and so the goats are all over the place and, and I'm trying to keep as many of them drawn in as I can. So, but yeah, it's, it's a challenge every time I sit down to write.
2: All right. And this, uh, this final question, uh, we want to ask you about this polarized partisan season we're in. Uh, so, you know, we're, we're here at the precipice of uh, the general election. And what advice do you have for Christians and pastors as we enter this phase? How, how should churches be getting to a place of fellowship and unity and, and civility uh, in, in this moment?
3: You know, I think there are two fundamentals that will keep us in the right mindset and our hearts softened to one another so that we are able to do those things you just mentioned. The first is to keep an eternal perspective on these things. Um, We live in a culture and a media culture that thrives on grabbing our attention. That's what their business model depends on. And how do you grab folks' attention? You scare them or you make them mad. And so we're constantly absorbing media content that gins us up on the inside and manifests fear and anxiety and um, hard feelings toward those who feel differently than we do. But if we have an eternal perspective and we know that this is not our home, this, this is where God has chosen for us to labor for this season, but it's not our home. And so we can rest in the fact that um, the kingdom of God is is going to go on, and His His purposes are going to be fulfilled, and His will is going to be done. We have only to be obedient. The second thing that I would say is that we've got to lean into our understanding of God's sovereignty, um, because you know if we believe that He's still on His throne the day after the election, it really doesn't matter who gets the title of president of the United States for a few years in this country that's really not even that old. I think sometimes um, in American life, we develop, and and I love my country. I I think America is exceptional in so many ways, but I think sometimes we are we get a little bit of an outsized sense of our own importance in the grand scheme of things and in history. And um, I know God has a purpose for us, but he has a much greater purpose um, for every nation and every tribe and every tongue. Um, So I'm called to be obedient. I'm not called to fix it all today. That's in God's hands. So if we all approach it in that way, we can take the pressure off of one another and, and reduce the tension in those places where we might have slightly different ideas. And we can love one another well as we sort of seek common ground and, and try to advance the ball in the way that we think the Lord would have us to do.
1: But well, Dana, I just want to say thanks so much uh, for taking the time to join us today. We like I'll just echo what Brent said. We love uh, your public commentary on all things faith, life, and culture. I'm immensely uh, grateful for what you shared there, just about how to, as a Christian, navigate this political moment by taking the long view, trusting in the Lord, uh, and and having confidence that He is the one who has His hand steering the course of history, uh, and and that we can we can rest in that. So uh, we just want to thank you for your for your voice. Thank you for uh, your uh, collaboration with us at the ERC, and we are really grateful you took the time to join us today.
3: Oh, it was a pleasure, guys. Thanks so much for having me on.
1: So now it's time for the lunch where every week we tell you about the things we've been talking about with one another. Lindsay, you're up first this week, so tell us what's behind
0: So I haven't shared an article in a while, um, mainly just because I spend a lot of time reading articles for my job, so <laughs> a lot of other Extemporaneous articles, uh, you like that word, do not uh, jump out to me sometimes, but this one really did, and is written by a former special advisor for religious minorities at the US Department of State. He served in both the Obama and Trump administrations. So anyway, a guy who who knows this stuff, but the title of this article is Coronavirus Church Closures Are Not Persecution. And then the subtitle, uh, Restrictions on Worship Are Unsettling and in some cases Illegal, but American Christians Must Protect the Intensity and Veracity of the Term. And this is something, I've not been using those words, but that is something that has gripped my heart this whole time because, yes, there have been some religious liberty issues that we have talked about and that we have tried to cover, and we are very committed to protecting the religious liberty of the people in the United States of America. But by and large, what we've been seeing throughout this coronavirus pandemic uh, is not Persecution—it's temporary. It's not going to last uh, forever. Uh, it's for the greater good, for the public health. And and this gentleman just talks about real persecution that is happening to our brothers and sisters around the world. For instance, he says persecution is the imprisoning of Christians because they are Christians. He talks about converts in Iran. And uh, Pastor Andrew Brunson in Turkey, persecution is a sudden closing of or commando-like police raids upon your church, as in the Soviet Union. He goes on to give some more examples, the bulldozing of churches to the ground as in China and Sudan. so so when we look at this it's it's a sobering look at even though we are facing some trials and we're facing a situation in the American Church that we've not, Known before, and that we're learning how to navigate. And thankfully, we have examples like Pastor Roland Slade showing us how to navigate the best we can. Also, Capitol Hill Baptist Church. We're not truly under persecution, and we need to remember uh, our brothers and sisters around the world who are.
1: That's a really good word, Lindsay. One of the things that we have spent a lot of time talking about since the onset of the pandemic in the United States was what what persecution looks like in the church and. Especially, you know, even as we have had a total disruption of our normal patterns and ways of worship uh, and many things about our own lives, one of the things that it's also drawn attention to is the fact that, that this is still nothing. It's so small in comparison to the actual persecution that some of our brothers and sisters in Christ face around the globe. And so I really appreciate you highlighting that. I'm going to stick with the article theme and talk about something I read this week at the Gospel Coalition. It's an article that actually a number of people on our our staff were kicking around and having a lot of conversations about, but the title was How Things Changed, Reflections of a Millennial Pastor in a Gen Z World, and this is a... Reflection from a guy who is a college pastor, I think at Northwestern, like he's, he's set at around Northwestern University and he writes as a millennial reflecting on the distinction between his generation and the Gen Z generation. And so there was one uh, quote that really stuck out to me. He said, among the most common observations about Gen Z is an alleged fragility. They are said to lack grit and resilience, to be weak in the face of trial and unprepared for adulthood. And then he says, though a caricatured version of this critique can go too far, my own experience confirms there is something here. The dominant chorus of you are strong has been replaced with a subtle dirge of you are weak. And he talks about this distinction between uh, these two generations where as a lot of millennials were raised, uh, and especially like evangelical millennials had this just big and optimistic view of the world about the fact that the Christian witness in the public square could be really winsome and effective and, and have a profound impact upon the way uh, the trajectory of the nation and of our politics, whereas for a lot of uh, what he's noticing among Gen Z is the fact that, that they seem to be way less sanguine. They seem to be uh, much less optimistic about the state of the nation, about the state of Christian uh, public witness and our ability to influence the culture. And so this is actually a really, really good uh, article that tracks along what he he calls this, you know, you are strong versus you are weak uh, distinction. And so I would definitely commend that to you. Well, ordinarily, I would be coming with some sort of, of resource, but my thing I'm bringing to the
2: lunchroom is more uh, of an experience. Uh, so I was able to uh, take a few days off uh, over the last uh, week and just just kind of get away with my wife. And that would be what I would offer as a reminder to folks in our audience. Uh, In the midst of all this craziness we see around us, in the midst of uh, this uh, pandemic, don't forget to take some time to just sit back and take a deep breath and unplug and get away from the the day-to-day stuff that we all have to deal with uh, because you need it for your soul. So that is what I would commend our faithful loyal
1: listening audience so that's it for the show this week but just as a reminder you can find links to all the things we talked about today in the show notes and if you like the podcast uh, please consider helping us spread the word by sharing the episode on social media or going into your podcast app and leaving us a rating or a brief review but for Lindsay and brent and myself we want to say thanks so much for listening and we will be back next week with more content